We'll continue in Romans 12. One verse today. It can be done. We can get through this verse in the allotted time. There is no allotted time. That's how I know we can get through it. <laughs> but let's read verse 12. And if, well, before we do that, let me just kind of recap of where we're at in this, in this section of his letter. Up through the first 11 chapters, and even in the first few verses of chapter 12, Paul has written in long, he has written in normal length sentences. They've been very detailed. They've been very elaborate. And then he comes to this section when he starts to turn uh, the style up a little bit and change it. He turns the literary style, he changes into short, quick, almost like bullet point instructions. It goes from these long flowing, deep, long sentences to these quick instructions for our Christian life. We see this similar in the last chapter of the, the book of 1 Thessalonians that he had written to the church of Thessalonica. It is very quick. It is very to the point. It's almost bullet point style. And this is where we're at. And these are all going to be referencing the call of a Christian. This is going to be instruction for our Christian life. And if you're a Christian, then this, this section is not debatable. This section is not something that we say no thank you to. We turn our, our, our cheek the other way. We close our eyes. We put our hands over our ears. These are instructions not from Paul, but from the Holy Spirit of God. Let us never forget that. That the author of this, was his hand was writing, but it was as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you are going to hear the words of God today. When we read this verse, this is from God. It means something, and it is very critical to our Christian life. This is the horizontal as we walk out our Christian life. Let's read it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 12, here's what it says. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. That being said, let us pray. Oh God, we come to you and we thank you for allowing us to be here today. And God, not just allowing us to be here, but giving us the undeserving privilege of opening your word and hearing from heaven. Lord, these are not just mere words on a page. They are from you. They are for our instruction, God. They are to help us grow in sanctification, God. They are to help us in every aspect of life. And God, we ask that you would give us instruction and wisdom and guidance and knowledge, God, that we could draw closer to you, God, that we could know you more. And God, as we listen and, and we teach this today, Lord, help us. It is your word. And we just want to speak it in all truth. And Lord, we are confident that you will accomplish all that you see fit here today. And we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I remember a long time ago, a few years back, before even being called into the ministry, I remember on a Wednesday night at Stone Fort. I was asked to lead a small group on a Wednesday night. Came out of the blue. There was no preparation time. 
and I had no idea what I was going to do. I can tell you the place it took place in. I can tell you the table I was sitting at. I can even see some of the faces there that night. And if the truth be told, I flipped through my Bible until I found a verse that looked pretty good. And it happened to be Romans chapter 12, verse 12. And I promise you, (laughs) I don't know what I said that night. And I'm sorry for anyone that heard anything that was not in accordance with the truth of God. And now, many years later, we come full circle. And we come to this text. And I understand things a little bit differently now. And I understand the power of this verse. I understand the meaning of this verse. I have heard R.C. say that when he would have people come up and want him to sign his, uh, the Reformation Study Bible. And for a long time, they would ask him, what's your life verse? And he said, if there's one verse that really just encompassed the, 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 the call of a Christian life, it would be Romans chapter 12, verse 12. And he would write this verse in his Bible, or the Bibles that he would sign for many, many years, because it is so meaningful and so deep in our Christian life. And it's just three quick instructions. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. That seems pretty simple, seems pretty easy. But let's begin to dive into these to understand what is being said here. The first one that we see is rejoicing in hope. You know, we had mentioned this on Thursday, that in 1 Corinthians 13, the same author that is writing to the Romans here is writing to the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians, and in verse th- chapter 13, in verse 13, he lists some of the top three uh, virtues of the Christian life. He says, he names faith, hope, and love. He says that the greatest of these is love. But there's a tier There are three virtues and characteristics and and attributes in a Christian life that mean a lot. And hope is in the top three that he mentions, which means it is important, and we must understand what this means. But we have to be assured that the way that we see the word hope in our normal lives is not the way that the Bible sees the word hope. Because here's how we use hope. We, we, we wish, we don't know it'll be, we hope it'll be, but there's still some uncertainty, so we say, therefore, I hope. I hope that Matthews is open by the time we leave tonight in Marion. That's my hope. I hope that this happens at work tomorrow. I hope that this good fortune comes to me. I hope this and I hope that. Have you ever hoped in anything that you didn't know the outcome of? Have you ever just hoped it would be okay, but you really didn't know? That's not what is being portrayed here when he tells us to rejoice in hope. Because the Bible's meaning of the word hope means it's a surety. You have hope in it because you know that it will happen. 
It is hope that does not disappoint. It is hope that does not let you down. It is hope that is an anchor for your soul. I remember I was having a conversation when I was still working at SIH and, and COVID was in its early stages and there was panic that was going on and, and people were losing their mind and, and I had a coworker come in and she began to talk about how crazy the world was and, and she made the statement, where's the hope? How do we have any hope in a time like this? And I said, well, here's how we have hope because our hope is not of this world. Our hope is of God. In the middle of uncertainty, there's one thing that's certain. It's God and His promises. They will never let you down. How many people in the world today are hopeful and hoping they find happiness? Well, if you try to find it outside of God, you have no hope. We hope that we will, we will live a good life and we hope we'll be happy and we hope we'll have peace and we hope we'll have an eternity that is in heaven and we hope and we don't know and this is the world, this is the world that we live in. But rest assured that he tells us to rejoice in the hope of God because it is not one that is left up to chance. It is not one that we don't have to know. We can have full a certainty of this hope. You see, there's the difference in the hopes. We can go to bed tonight knowing that every promise that you read in here, we have hope in it because we know it is a surety and it will come to pass. And we find this in Hebrews chapter 6. And, and let me say this. I know we've mentioned it before. So if you've heard it before, just humor me and listen to it again. But we come to the story. I mentioned that, that R.C. would write Romans 12, 12 in his Bible. At, but then he changed it at a certain point in his life to Genesis 15, 17. And he says this would be the verse or the chapter that if he had to take one chapter out of his Bible to prison with him, if he was ever to go to prison, it would have been Genesis chapter 15, which seems like an odd choice. But you have to understand what is happening in Genesis 15 to understand what we're going to read about the hope that is an anchor for your soul. And we find this in Hebrews 6. We'll find that at the end of this story, but we have to go to the beginning of the story to understand what is going on. Because God is promising Abraham or Abram a son. He is telling him that he will be blessed. And this is where we come to the, one of the most uh, amazing verses in the whole Bible is in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abram was told that he would have a son, that he would be the father of many nations, that he would have this promise bestowed upon him. But he had no son, and he thought he had no hope. How are you going to give me a son? How are you going to make me the father of many nations when I have no son? And, and Abram says, listen, the only one I have in my house is my head servant, Eliezer. And is he going to be it? And he says, no, it will be from your own loins. It will be from you, Abram. Listen to my promise. And this is how Abram was declared righteous in the sight of God in verse 6. He says, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. It was not by works. It was by faith and faith alone. He believed him. He before then, God says, look up at the heavens, count the stars. If you're able to count them, so shall your descendants be. Abraham didn't know how it all come to pass, but he believed God. That was his hope was in the promise of God. 
The circumstance looked bleak. The circumstance looked hopeless in the sight of our natural understanding. But he believed God. I believe you, God. I'm going to hope in the promise that you've given me. And then he goes down a little farther, and here comes Abram in verse 8, and he says, Oh, Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? God, I believe you. You've said it, but how will I know? How will I know that I can have hope in this promise? We've read it before. But how have you ever made a promise to someone? We've joked about this before. What is the ultimate sign of your word in today's society? Give me your pinky. And as long as our pinkies interlock, then my word is good. Because if I make a pinky promise, consider it done. Right? I mean, how silly is this? My word is not enough, but once our small digits interlock and I say the same thing, then we're good to go. But God had a little bit different plan. Abram has just had life-changing news put his way. God, I believe you, but how will I know? And here's how God decided to show Abram. He said, bring me a three-year-old heifer. That seems logical, doesn't it? How many ever times have you tried to make sure that your word is known and you say, go bring the heifers, boys? I've got to make a point. But this is what God does. Bring a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. So what we see, we've mentioned it before, but we'll just quickly, briefly set the stage, that in custom of that time, to make a promise or to have a covenant. The word covenant is where we get the word cut or to separate from. And so what has happened is what they would do is they would take the animals, they would cut them in half, and then they would separate them and make a walkway in between the two sides of the carcasses. And each party would walk in between the carcasses, and their walking between the carcasses was to say this, that if I go against this promise, let it be to me as it was to these animals. Let me die. And both parties would walk between the animals that were cut and split, which is what we see here. And if I don't keep my promise, then let it be on me as it was these animals. Serious thing. Abram's like, God, how will I know? Bring the animals. And he cuts them. And now we've got the halves of the animals in a walkway in between. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. If you remember the, the type and shadow of, of Moses, that the people would be enslaved for 400 years before one would come to rescue them. And we know that between the Old and the New Testament, there was 400 years before one would come and lead them out of bondage by way of Christ. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. 
Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And here's the verse that R.C. would write in the Bible. Here's the verse that meant so much to him. Here's the verse that would let him lay his head down on his pillow at night. And it is the same for you and me both. Do you remember the question? How will I know that I can have hope in what you say and I won't have to have uncertainty? God, how will I know? We've got the animals cut. We've got the the walk away in between. And the answer comes in verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. That's it. Smoking oven and a flaming torch that went in between the carcasses that were cut. What you have just seen is the assurity of the salvation of everyone who puts faith in Christ. You can take it to the bank. It is a hope that you don't have to wonder and hope it'll come to pass. It is final. It is a hope that is an anchor to your soul. What does this mean? What you just saw is a theophany of God. That in the Bible, that God appears in manifestation in different ways and in different places. And one of his primary ways of doing this is fire. Do you remember at the burning bush? He came to Moses and he said, Ego, I mean, I am. It was God in the fire of the burning bush. Do you remember on the mountain of Sinai in Exodus 19, where it was fire and smoke and great fear? And it was God who called up from the mountain. That was a theophany of God. Do you remember who led the children of Israel through the wilderness by fire and by pillar of cloud? It was God. And God, in the form of a theophany, says, Abram, do you want to know? I'm going to pass through these carcasses. Now, you'll notice there was something different about this time as opposed to what we mentioned about the tradition of that time. Because it was before it would take two people to walk down in between the carcasses. But this time, it was just God. Because it was from God. It was through God. It was to God, and it was not from Abram. Do you know what God is saying here? Abram, do you want to know how you can have an anchor for your soul? Do you want to know how you can know that what I say is something that you can have hope in? That I myself is going to pass between these animals. And here's what he's saying. Abram, if I don't keep my promise to you, then let it be to me as it was to these animals and let me die. Basically what he's saying is this. The only way this promise is not final and something that you can have hope in is if I stop being God. That's the hope that was given to Abraham. And if you are a child of God, your hope is that sure as well. It is not something that we are to fret and to worry and say, God, is this all for naught? Are you going to just take it all away from me? No. Because if you've had faith like Abraham, 
It's that final. Isn't that hope? You don't have to wonder. The world is hoping and praying and pleading that all works out okay, and they hope that they find this and they hope they find that, but there is no hope outside of God. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 6 in light of what we just talked about, of him passing through the carcasses as it being hope, as it being final. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Who's he going to swear by? I'll swear by the earth. Oh, I can't do that. I created the earth. I'll swear by the stars. Can't do that. They're under my command. Who can I swear on greater than myself? I don't have anything else higher. I don't have anything above me. So to show you the seriousness of my word, I'm swearing by me. That's the assuredness and the hope that we have. He swore by himself. That's why he passed through the animals, saying, I will surely bless you and will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness, the immutableness of his purpose, he interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, who, we who have taken refuge, who have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that was set before us, this hope that was shown to Abram, this hope that is in your soul, look what he describes it as, not something that we don't know about, not something that we have to fear about, but what kind of hope? This hope we have as an anchor, of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Do you have hope in your soul? If you are of God, and He has called you, and He has justified you, then guess what? Let your mind go back to that theophany in Genesis 15. And the only way that does not come to pass, your salvation doesn't come to full fruition in heaven, is that God lies, or God dies. And He lives forever, and it's impossible for Him to lie. That's hope. See, the hope of the world and the hope of a Christian are two different things. That's why he says, rejoice in that hope. Don't be sorrowful in that hope. God has promised by himself. Rejoice. Rejoice. Listen to a few more of these verses that he says in Romans 8. Verse 18 through 25, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. 
that the creation also itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Even the earth, the world has hope that it will be set free from the curse. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within us, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. Not, I hope it works out, by hope. We have been saved. It is an anchor for your soul. How many times in your Christian life have you maybe laid yourself at bed at night and wondered, is this real? Is it final? Is it it something I can hope in? Or do I have to wonder and, and worry every single day of my life? He says it was by hope that you've been saved. Not by hope assuredness. Why? Because God promised by Himself. Think about what we have to say, to say that God would save us and then yank it back from us. Think about what that says about His promise, and think about what you have to say about your hope. There's no hope there, because it comes down to you. And if it comes down to me, losing everything God has given me, take it from me now, because I could never keep it on my own. My hope is in God, not in me. It is by hope that you have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes what is already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. We persevere because we know it is coming. It is by hope that we have our Redemption. Listen to this in Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, just like Abraham was, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. We exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exalt in tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Boy, if you hope in the world, you're going to find that you're disappointed really quickly and very often. But with God, there is no disappointment. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That sounds like a gift. And what do we know about the gifts of God? I don't know which way to pronounce it. But they're irrevocable or irrevocable. Take your pick. They are final. How does that square away with everything? How can the gifts be final? Because our hope is final. It is hope in Christ. It is a hope in His Word. Do you rejoice in this hope? Or do we fret in this hope? It is good news. It is great news. If you ever begin to worry and fret and lack of hope, Picture God passing between those carcasses and thinking what it would have to do and mean for that hope not to be finalized in your redemption. There's a lot of other verses that we have on hope. You can read those later. 
But what's interesting here is the last one on your page of hope is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That means you know it's coming. You can stand fast and firm in the promises of God. I wrote this down. No matter what comes in our life, we can know with all certainty that plan A is running full speed ahead, flawlessly. We have a hope that God's word is true and faithful, and all of his promises will be kept perfectly. No matter the struggles we face in the world, we have hope that they can't compare to the glory that will be revealed in heaven. We also have hope and assurance to all those who are called, and then in return, those who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. We have assurance that heaven is our home, not because of us, but because of him and his word. I wrote this, no matter the crashing waves that we face in life, we as Christians have an anchor for our soul. And that is Christ. And that causes our souls to rejoice. Look what he says, rejoicing in hope. How many times have you used the word hope? If I hope it comes to pass, please. The hope of God is final because he swore by himself. What a great hope we have. He goes on to say, persevering in tribulation. The word for persevering in this text comes from the word where it means to endure, persevere, remaining under the load of, bearing up, enduring. Some translations will say to be patient during the tribulation. The tribulations of our life are from God. We have to think that. We have to know that. They are from God. They're through God. They're ultimately to God. The tribulations of our life have a purpose. There's not one that is random. There's not one that is not without purpose. The purpose is first and foremost the glory of God. It is for Him. We know that. It is all for the glory of God. But do you know that there's a secondary purpose for your tribulation? It's your sanctification. If I asked you, would you do anything would you go through anything to be more conformed to the image of God? I believe right off the bat we would say, of course. Yes, I'll do anything and I'll go through anything if it means I get to be more like God and conform to His image. But how quickly, how quickly we forget that when the first big test or tribulation comes in our way. What do we pray? God, take it away. Don't we? Let's be honest. Not a lot of us love the idea of tribulation, pain, and suffering, and rightfully so. Have you ever prayed that? God, take it away now. Remove it now. But what if on the other end of that was your sanctification? What if on the other end of that was God using that to make you more conformed to His image? Do we then raise our hand and say, I'll do anything. Anything. Hard or easy. Joyful or heartbreaking. God, it is from you. It's for your glory. I trust you. If it comes from you, God, I trust you. Because I know your heart. 
and your heart is for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I'll do anything, God. He says that we are to persevere in tribulation because the tribulations in our life are producing glory for Him and sanctification for you and me. Do we still have confidence in the middle of the hardest things in your life that plan A is still running flawlessly? Boy, it's easy to say it's running flawlessly when things are going good. But can you trust this God when things are going bad? The hope is still the same. The rejoicing and hope doesn't change. See, just because we're on to the second point doesn't mean that rejoicing and hope leaves us. We rejoice in hope in the middle of the perseverance and the tribulation because we know and we have hope that it is God who works it for His glory. The length, the intensity, the timing of all our tribulations are not coincidental and they're not accidental, but they are ordained by God. So often we rush out, we want out of the tribulation, but they are the perfect length at the perfect time to produce the perfect result. We read this in Romans 5 earlier. Listen to what he says. And we know not only this, but we exult in tribulation. How many times have you read that and thought, how in the world is that even possible? Because we look at the moment and we say, this can't be for good. What is greater in a Christian life than being more conformed to the image of God? Would you be willing to take tribulation? And heartache for it, even if you're not ready for it, it's coming because it's from God. It's of Him. And guess what the will of God is for your life? Sanctification. He tells us that. But we exalt in our tribulation. Why? Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character, and proven character brings us hope. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 and verse 12, we have heard this probably a million times in our Christian life, but listen to it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know it. You have to know it. In endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's the hope. We can persevere. Romans 8, 18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, he says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, but through our, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed. Does that sound familiar? How's the inner man being renewed? In the knowledge of God. And when you have increased knowledge of God, do you know what you know? You know that all things are working for the glory of God. And you know He's producing the right result in you. And you know it's for your sanctification. See, the knowledge of that helps you handle the tribulation. It's not a feeling. It's not just a whim. It is anchored in the knowledge. It is anchored in the hope that we deal with these tribulations. Listen, it's being renewed day by day for momentary light afflictions. If you ever want to know what Paul considers momentary light afflictions, go read the last portion of uh, 2 Corinthians. 
around 10, 11, 12, you'll see that his light afflictions don't seem so light in comparison to our afflictions. Shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, etc., etc., naked, starved, perils of sword, perils of danger. And he calls them light and momentary afflictions. We have someone say something bad to us, and we're ready to call it quits. And we have somebody at work say this to us, or we have this little thing. We have no idea. And Paul calls them light and momentary because in perspective, it's producing something greater than this earth. Listen to what he says. This affliction, this tribulation, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I'm not asking you, and I'm not telling you, and I'm not telling myself that we should just be laughing through every tribulation because we're humans, and we cry, and we weep, and our heart breaks, and we know that we have to weep with those who weep. But we can persevere in them. We don't have to lay down and give up. We don't have to throw in the towel because we have an anchor for our soul. And if you could just stop for a moment and think about this, that on the other end of that tribulation is your sanctification. Is it worth it? Would you want to leave it too early? God, get me out of this now. But what if at the very end of it, it was your closeness to God? Would you then say, get me out of it now? Or would you say, God, as long as you want me here, whatever it is, the thing that matters most to me is my sanctification with you. Guilty as charged is praying in the past, get me out of it now. Get me out of it right now. This leads me to the example that we've mentioned before, but again, maybe you've not heard it. It goes very well here to the story of the potter. Not the potter, I'm sorry, the refiner. The potter is just so fresh in my mind all the time, you just have to know that. But it's the refiner's fire. The story goes that this lady was in church, and she heard a message on God it being a refiner's fire, and it piqued her interest. So she goes to the local blacksmith, and she says, I just heard this message, and I need you to explain this to me. Can I just sit and watch you? Can I just sit and just watch what is happening. I want to understand this process. Sure, grab a seat, stand, whatever you want to do. I'll just go about my business. And the blacksmith takes the material there, and he begins to hold it into the fire. And the first question that she has, she begins to notice that there's different colors of flames. Some are hotter than others. But she noticed that this blacksmith never let this object, this material, leave the hottest part of the flame. She asked, is, is there a reason? Are you just steady? Or, or what's going on? Why are you not moving from this particular color of the flame? Is that important? He says, oh, absolutely, ma'am. I have to hold it at the hottest part. I have to put it to the hottest part because it's only there that the impurities get burned. 
and the material becomes more moldable to what I want. If I put it in the cooler part, it won't burn the impurities and I, I can't shape it and mold it like I want. So it's necessity. I have to bring it to the hottest part and I have to leave it there. Oh, thank you. That makes sense. She begins to watch him more. And she asks several questions, but she notices something else. That every time she asks a question, he never looks at her. It's like, sir, I hope I don't offend you with this. But every time I ask you a question, you don't even look at me. Like, you won't even just make eye contact with me. Is there a reason? Yes, ma'am, there is. I can't take my eyes off what I'm doing. I can't take my eyes off what I have in the fire. Not for one second can I lose it. Not for one second can I look over here and get distracted. But I have to keep my eyes on it at all times. Why do you have to keep your eyes on it at all times? I have to know the exact moment that it's ready to be taken out of the fire. Not a minute too soon. And not a minute too late. Not a second too soon. Not a second too late. But I have to put it in the hottest part. I have to keep my eyes on it at all times because I have to know the moment that it's ready for me to mold it into what I want it to be. Her final question was everything. Sir, how do you know? How do you know when it's ready to come out? You know what he said? When I can see my reflection in it. That's the story of God. At the tribulations of your life, ask Job, they are from God. They've always been from God. And He's holding you in the middle of those tribulations, in the hottest part, which may seem overwhelming, which may seem unbearable. But know this, He has to you there for your sanctification but here's the hope that you have you're not going to be in there a moment too soon or leave it too soon and you're not going to be in there a moment too long but when he sees his reflection in you via sanctification then he will take you out and you will be refined and you will have a greater walk with Him. That's how you can persevere through every trial. Rejoice in the hope of God, but persevere in the tribulation, and we have them, and we will have them, and they will not stop until we enter the eternal state. The last point on this persevering tribulation is what we started with. Knowing that, 
Would you ever pray to be taken out too soon again? You see how what we think and what we want so many times does not match what God says in His Word. That's the hardest thing, isn't it? That goes back to your will being done. God, I, this is horrible to me. I have no idea how long you want me in this. I have no idea why, except for it's from you and it's for your glory. So God, give me the strength and give me the hope and give me the perseverance that you keep me in here for the exact amount of time you want me to be here. And I know that when it's done, it'll be from you. That's the prayer. That's the persevering in tribulation. And in the middle of all these tribulations, do you know what Paul's message was that we read just a few verses earlier? Press on. Run with all your might because you've got a God who has eyes on you at all times and it's for His glory. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and then the final one. This is the one that kind of anchors everything together. He says this, and as soon as I hear this, I don't know if anybody else just feels this enormous just weight of just how far I've fallen in this last one. He says, be devoted to prayer. Do you know the characteristic of a Christian is devoted to prayer? How many verses do we have? First, uh, first uh, Thessalonians 5.17, when at the end of the, that book that Paul is in these short bullet points, do you know what he says? Pray without ceasing. That's what he tells us to do. In Colossians 4.2, he says, devote yourselves to prayer. Keep an alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. What's amazing to me is that the Christian is called to be constant and continuous in prayer. It is an essential element of our Christian life, but doesn't it seem to be the thing that gets neglected the most? Think about that just for a second. Verses that tell us to be constant in prayer, steadfast in prayer, devoted to prayer. It's the thing that we push to the back burner, don't we? Can anybody ever relate to that you give God your very best in your prayer life as you're falling asleep? How many times you started a prayer and you have no idea how far you got and you wake up and you're like, I don't even know how, I, I have no idea. We give God our leftovers, don't we? He tells us to be devoted in prayer. Think about this, that we have the privilege, the privilege to go to the creator of the universe in prayer. Do you ever think about that? That you get to communicate with this God. And not only do you have the privilege of speaking to Him, you want to hear something even more mind-blowing? You have the privilege, if you're a child of God, to call Him Father. I can't think of anything I deserve less than to be able to go to prayer and call Him Father. That's the privilege that He's bestowed on us. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus intercedes for us before the Father. That's how we're justified forever. That's how we have hope. Because as long as He lives, He intercedes for us. That's how we can have assurance that our salvation is complete. For us to lose our salvation, that means that God, uh, Christ would fail as an intercessor. 
Because he says he's the one who justifies and he intercedes. And as long as he intercedes, we're justified. How long will God intercede for us? How long will he live? Forever. Isn't that amazing that you have Jesus interceding for you before the Father? But you have the Holy Spirit interceding for you in prayer. And I remember Taylor said this once. Just became overwhelmed with emotion. That who am I? That the third part of the Godhead would take any time of his day to intercede for me in my prayers. Think about that for a second. He tells us that in Romans 8, 26 through 28. Listen to this. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. And I think we can all get an amen right here. For we do not know how to pray as we should. That's it. He helps us in that weakness. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because he intercedes for the saints of God. How? According to the will of God. That when you pray and you have no idea what to pray for, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for you and ushers your prayers to the throne of God in accordance with the will of God. How amazing is that? That God is interceding for you. The Son is interceding for you for your justification. And the Holy Spirit is interceding for you in your prayers. We're going to mention this a little bit tonight. But there's a parable in Luke 18. And I remember this. We did this message once, and I can tell you that I, we were driving home from a gymnastics meet, and we did this via whatever, it was Zoom. I was sitting in the passenger seat, and we went over the parable of Luke 18 of the persistent widow who continued to pray and to intercede on her behalf. And we, we see that. We'll talk about that tonight. But in this parable, in Luke 18, we are told that this parable has a specific purpose, that the parables have a purpose. And the purpose of this is, he says he was telling this parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. To never stop praying. To never stop because God hears you. Now, we don't pray to change God's mind because God's mind does not get changed. It is set, it is secure from the foundation of the world. His will has been decreed. There is not, we don't change His mind. But we pray in accordance with His will. This is the thing with prayer, right? Here's, here's the two things we do. We are, we are in the flesh. We don't know how to pray a lot. We, we want to pray to get out of things. We want to pray for the healing. We want to pray for the good of this. And in our flesh, we don't know the will of God, so we pray. God, I don't know your will. But in my flesh, this is what I want. I hope it's in accordance with yours, but if it's not, do you know what trumps what I want? Your will be done. It's a, there's a compatibilism with our prayers. God, I don't know. But at the end of it, your will be done. And we know that if our prayers are ushered up to the throne and we are children of God, there's one who intercedes in our prayer life. And you can rest assured this, that every prayer you pray, by the time it gets to the throne of God, the Spirit has brought it there, ushered it there in accordance with the will of God. What an amazing God.
in our weakness. But in this parable, he says, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Even if you feel like all is lost, even if you feel like there's no hope, you know there's hope. Know that God's will, His perfect will is being done. And He hears your prayers. And they will be answered in accordance with His will. What's our prayer life look like? Does prayer change things? Of course it does. You know what, the, what it changes more than anything in the world? Us. Prayer is meant to conform our hearts and our souls to the will of God. And the farther your sanctification goes, you will notice it by your prayer life. The eyes will stop and the U's will begin. It will not be I, 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 I. It'll be you, 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 you. Your will be done. To you be the glory. This is for your perfect goodness. I pray that your will is done. Yes, God, this is my heart at the time because I have flesh and I don't know what's your will. But God, at the end of the day, it's yours. And our prayer life turns into praise. And our prayer life turns into adoration and joy. Think about what he says in Philippians 4. He says, present your request to God. With what? With thanksgiving. With joy. How can you come to prayer when you don't know how the end of that prayer and what the answer is going to be? How could we ever have joy and thanksgiving in our prayer life? Well, we have an anchor for the soul. We know that we can persevere through tribulation because it's all working for His glory. So therefore, our prayer life changes. We come and we rest in Him. You become less in your prayer life the farther you grow in sanctification. And it becomes praise and surrender to His will. Devoted to prayer. We'll talk about that parable a little bit later to, tonight on Luke 18. It, prayer is not an optional thing. It's, God tells us to pray without ceasing. It conforms our attitudes, our minds, and desires to the will of God. The more one becomes sanctified, the more our prayers are rooted in the your will be done. And in praise of Him. Think about two examples as we close. Jesus gives us the example in the Garden of Gethsemane where He says, not my will, but yours be done. He gives us the example. And then we go to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, and it says this, Our Father, there it is, the Father is in heaven. Hallowed or holy is your name. What's the next part? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You see, that only comes with sanctification, right? Look back at your prayer life. If you think, I don't want to. And we all fail in this. But how has your prayer life changed? I would make a safe bet that your prayer life has changed because you've renewed your mind in the knowledge of Him. And once you know who God is, and once you know that it's all for Him, then your prayer life changes. And it becomes a time of worship. Constantly in prayer. Devoted in prayer. This is what He says. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. And devoted to prayer. And the last thing we'll say is this. Remember the number one rule when you pray. 
Remember to whom you are speaking. And then remember who you are. Let's pray. God, how unworthily we are to call you Father. That is a gift from you and from you alone. God, because if I know one thing, there's nothing that I have ever done or ever been to be called a son of yours. God, I thank you for your amazing grace. And God, I thank you for your word today. God, thank you that in the middle of the seas and the storms of life, God, we have an anchor for our souls. An anchor that is steadfast, an anchor that is not moving. An anchor that is immutable. God, we thank you for the promise that you made to Abram. God, we thank you that you swore by yourself. And God, we know that you could never lie. And you will never die. God, let us all today that are in you feel the hope is in you and we would rejoice in that hope God it's all from you thank you and God we want to thank you for our tribulations God we want to thank you because they are producing in us an eternal weight of glory God that they are producing sanctification God and Lord let us have minds to know that we are growing in our sanctification with every trial. And that is your purpose and your plan. But ultimately, it's for your glory. God, let us persevere. Let us be patient in them and know they're your perfect timing. And God, I pray that you would give us a zeal, a fire to be devoted in prayer. God, that we would not think of it as something that is a chore, but God, something that is worship that we come to our Father in heaven. We surrender our souls to your will. And in that surrender, we have a heart of thanksgiving. It's from you. It's through you. And we have hope beyond hope that it is to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.